What motivates a playwright to tackle the complex experiences of diasporic communities and the feeling of displacement? How does a writer employ form and structure to grapple with contested histories? I'm Dina Dimitriadis and welcome to the second episode of Staging the Nation. Welcome to Staging the Nation. We'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, uh, we look back through the contemporary Australian canon and shine a light on some of the writers that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this second episode in the series, I'm very happy to be speaking with Donna Abella and delving into her play, Jump for Jordan. Looking deep into the heart of Sydney and beyond, Jump for Jordan unpacks the experience common to countless second generation Australians of being caught between two cultures Sifting through shifting layers of past and present, farce and fantasy, it's one woman's mad, messy excavation of her own history and her attempt to piece together the broken bits of her identity. Jump for Jordan won the Griffin Award in 2013 and was also awarded the 2015 Augie for Stage. Donna is an award-winning playwright and has written over 30 original and adapted stage plays for youth, community, independent and mainstream theatre companies, and radio plays for the ABC and Eastside Radio. She's been commissioned to adapt stories in the public domain, develop original narratives, devise works with young or professional performers, create works based on community consultation, and has collaborated with multi-writer teams. Donna is a founding member and board member of Powerhouse Youth Theatre in New South Wales, and is also a founding member of the Seven On Playwrights Group. Welcome, Donna Rabella. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dino. It's so lovely to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. It really is. Chatting jump for Jordan. Mm. Let's begin at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's a question I like to ask every playwright. Jump for Jordan was self-initiated. Yeah. It didn't arrive as a commission. Can you tell me why you decided to write the play? It was. It's one of those plays that just has a hold of, takes hold of you and doesn't let you go. Um, so the idea for this play, I began writing it in earnest in 2010, <clears throat> but the idea had been around for, for you know years prior to that and it just kept sort of like knocking on the door, knocking on the door. Um, and it was, I think because, you know, the, the, the sort of idea at the heart of the play is sort of, I think, something that I had to reconcile with my own background because I'm also from a, you know, um, hybrid cultural background mm. as well. And I just think that it was a vehicle where I could kind of think through some of my own issues and family issues um, to do with, you know, generations, you know, generational inheritance. Um, yeah, and it just it just took hold and wouldn't go away. And can you remember the first spark, that moment that you decided 
there's a play in this? Well, it, it, the thing with Jumford Jordan, it, it does have its, its basis in something that really happened to a friend of mine. Mm. Um, and so this is going back a long time ago. So I was working with a friend um, and her aunts had come out from Jordan um, for the wedding of her sister, which is part of the play. Mm. Um, and this friend had studied archaeology um, but wasn't working in archaeology. Um, she was, you know, not living at home, had shamed her family by running away as, you know, is in John for Jordan. Um, and I was working with my friend on a daily basis when the aunts were about to arrive or the aunts <laughs> had arrived or, you know, the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was getting like, day, you know, day by day accounts of what was happening to my friend. And what was really fascinating for me, the outsider, was looking at her um, panic just this sheer panic about, you know, how am I going to be treated? And I bet they're from the dark ages and I bet they're, you know, uh, you know, like, you know, ignorant and I bet they're, and all of the sort of, you know, racial stereotypes that were floating around in the world at the time to do with, because, you know, we had September 11, we had mm. the Bali bombings, you know, we, we had, you know, a very large patch of, you know, um, you know, you know, five, ten years of events where people from the Middle East were just getting vilified and the West was representing people from the Middle East, you know, as hysterical, as violent, as, you know, dangerous, as ignorant, as savage, as, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, and it was really interesting to see my friend kind of like, you know, buying into those stereotypes and she was buying into them because she didn't have information. Mm. And that's what racism you know, it, you know, that's kind of breeds racism because you fill that gap with your fear. Um, and, you know, and time passed anyway. And then I went to my friend and I went, look, I think there's a play here. Mm. <laughs> um, would, could I interview you? And she was happy to be interviewed. So she, I did, you know, lots of interviews, we had lots of food, um, made transcripts of it. And I said to her, look, would you, you know, you're, are you okay with me, you know, using, you know, your story at the heart? Now, it's, it, a lot of the story is not hers, mm. but the heart, the, 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 it was the cultural panic that, that I identified with because um, I, I also didn't know my, my father's cultural background, he's Maltese, mm. and I grew up with no entry point into that culture. And so similarly, I had filled that gap with my own fears. Um, and so I said, that's what I want to do with your story. I'm not, I'm not going to pay out on you. I don't, I'm not going to pay out on anybody. In fact, it's an anti-racist play. Um, but I want to look at racism from the inside. Um, because I thought if I just wrote, you know, a play about, you know, oh, love your Arabic neighbour, mm. you white person, like that's a really boring play, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I thought if I could, if I could write a play about racism that had been internalised by somebody who, part, you know, part of her, you know, genetic inheritance is from that cultural background, um, that's a much more interesting play. Mm. And you really get a sense of that being trapped between two cultures, mm. which is yeah. Yes, yes. Because what she has to negotiate is, is um, in Jump for Jordan is you know there's the the Jordanian cultural background, the Palestinian cultural background, and also to so Sophie's born here, mm. so you know she's she's you know you're formed by the land you live on, you're formed by the accents that you you know you imbibe you know from the minute you start to play, um, and so she's she's tricultural if anything mm. you know. Um, and so having to negotiate, you know, the different value systems and life expectations across that, that sort of three-way divide is, you know, why there's a play. Mm. Yeah. So this play was first performed in 2014. Yeah. And for so many reasons, one wouldn't have expected this play to be programmed yeah. at all. Uh, 
the first time it was programmed. In what ways was Jump for Jordan the exception and mm. not the rule of what was happening in Australian theatre at the time? Yeah. Um, it's why I wrote it. <laughs> mm. I wrote it because of what was not happening. Um, I mean, there were a couple of leaders championing, um, you know, culturally diverse plays, um, that had, you know, outside of the mainstream. And Lee Lewis was one of them. Um, so I was very fortunate by the time she became artistic director of Griffin, she, there was a no-brainer, you know, for her. A play like mine would go to the top of the pile, not the bottom of the pile. But what was happening in Australia at the time was um, it's, it's – I've been thinking about this because it's actually a kind of slightly bigger question big, – answer because I'm, I'm – you know, I've been writing plays for a long time. Um, so I remember the 80s and 90s when there was a multicultural boom. Like I remember when we had Carnivale, the Carnivale, you know, multicultural festival, which ran for 25 years in New South Wales. Um, I, you know, I remember the multicultural theatre alliances. You know, uh, uh, theatre alliance, um, Powerhouse Theatre worked with them. Um, I um, remember there being um, a multicultural theatre festival where there were, you know, plays in Turkish, plays in, you know, um, Cantonese, you know, plays in Greek. You know, we had this happening in the 80s, in the 90s certainly. Um, in the 80s, you know, working with communities. Uh, and in various language, particularly if you're working in Western Sydney, um, with like Death Defying Theatre, for example, who then became Urban Theatre Projects. Cultural diversity was, was you know, it, we were kind of doing it. Mm. You know, some people were doing it. And there was funding, you know, so there, there, was, you know, there was a multicultural theatre board or, or multicultural, uh, yeah, but they were funding multicultural arts. Multiculturalism, um, when Whitlam got in, um, became a national policy and it was a national policy for, the, you know, the better part of 20 years until Howard came in. So I remember coming, you know, developing as an emerging writer at a time when it was, you know, to embrace other cultures and other languages in your work was a great thing. To have women on stage was a great thing. Mm -hmm. And by the mid nineties, you know, and you know, I've I've done a doctorate. I've read. <laughs> I know the scholarship around it. Women were actually making, you know, a, a name for themselves in the mainstream as playwrights. That was really happening in the nineties. Howard came in, policy shifts, economic shifts, um, multiculturalism as a policy gets cancelled. Um, theatre company, and then what, ha what um, happened is you get the um, structural inequity within the, the arts. So you get the majors and then you get everybody else. So the majors get quarantined funding, but it's reduced. Um, and so they have to be more commercially minded, so they're less risk averse. So multicultural work, what was then called multicultural work, um, it tends to not wasn't getting programmed. Women's work was not getting programmed because it was seen to yeah. be too risky. And so we had a boom in the nineties, um, and it's it's all, all the academic literature you know, to do with Australian theatre says we were on the cusp of something amazing. And then it was the rug was pulled out from under us, and so I was. You know, it was kind of like, I just kind of like learnt my craft and then there was no work and then there was no, you know, where for me to go. Um, and then no one was programming women. Um, and also to, so what, you know, what tended to happen was that, you know, I think maybe playwrights also got more conservative in what they were doing. I certainly yeah. know lesbian writers weren't, you know, offering, um, uh, uh, if they were writing lesbians, you know, because Dunford Jordan has a lesbian protagonist. Yes. Um, and I wrote that partly because um, I wasn't seeing that on mm. main stages. I wasn't seeing that hardly anywhere. Um, now, lesbian playwrights were um, writing lesbian-centred um, work, but it wasn't getting programmed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, some 
then stopped writing about, you know, lesbian centred stories and stuff like that. So, um, and then you have September 11 and then you have the vilification mm-hmm. of, you know, um, you know, certain communities. Um, and so, and then sort of more funding cuts. And so there was, and Julia Merrick talks about how kind of there was a rot that had set in in Australian theatre by about 2005. Mm. Um, and the rot was to do with the repertoire. Yeah, we all, I mean, we also saw in that period a time when, you know, the rise of the auto director yep. and that was linked with yes. um, this rise in adaptations. Yep. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the, I think, a really um, unfortunate policy sort of direction that happened was that um, an adaptation of a Chekhov play by an Australian playwright was considered an Australian play. Um, and so a whole lot of companies started to program, you know, Chekhov or, you know, whoever, um, adapted often by men um, because women don't get adaptations because apparently we can't do structure. Um, so, mm. yeah. Um, so and so then then what you had, you know, the, the, the uh, adaptations became Australian content, uh, like Australian plays, and I think that's problematic because that further displaced voices, you know, Australian voices and, and Australian stories. Um, and so by the time, you know, I started to get serious about writing Jump for Jordan in 2010, like I was just, you know, it was like I had been promised the world. I had been promised as a young emerging writer, you know, like, you know, a place on stages. I had been promised, um, you know, diverse stories. I had seen diverse stories. You know, mm. I had seen women, you know, you know, women's plays on the main stage and stuff. And then all of a sudden all of that disappeared. And so I was just really angry. I was mm. just, it was just like, you know, and also too, because I've done a lot of work in Western Sydney and, you know, I'm a you know, founding member of Powerhouse Youth Theatre, diversity is our bread and butter. Like we were working with, you know, we still, we, today, 32 years later, we're working with diverse communities, you know, every time we breathe. Um, and But I wasn't seeing it happening in, you know, most theatre companies in Sydney. And it was just like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, really? It's like, been happening in yeah, Western Sydney. It's, you know, yeah, yeah. I know. And so I just thought, you know, and, you know, and, and Western, you know, and diverse plays were happening, but not on the main stage. So I wrote this play because it's like, I wanted to see, you know, um, a lesbian protagonist mm. that wasn't deranged or dangerous or predatorial. Um, I wanted to see a, a picture of an Arabic family, you know, that, that you know, um, that, you know, they, they weren't psychopaths, you know, they weren't terrorists, you know, they were just people trying to plant new lives as any migrant community does, you know. Um, and I also wanted to put women of a certain age, two of the women in the play are 60. Yeah. You don't get to see, you very rarely get to see women of a certain age on stage as well. I wanted a gentle masculinity. So Sahar, yes. Sahir the father, you know, he's he's a gentle, gentle, gentle soul. And I wanted to fly in the face of that stereotype of, you know, Arabic men always being, you know, knife wielding, <laughs> I don't know, gun toting, yeah. you know, all, that, all that kind of stuff. So I just thought, you know, the world I knew wasn't on stages mm. and it just made me really angry. It made me angry um, for audiences. It made me angry for actors that weren't getting those roles you know, I just thought, oh, come on, catch up. We were here. Like we were here in the past and the promise was not fulfilled. Now, mm. <laughs> to just to quickly add to that, um, this happened in the 30s. Yeah. It happened in the 50s. It happened in the, you know, the 70s and 80s. You know, so the history of Australian theatre, um, it plays are only 100, 110 years. You know, as, as a cultural product, we've only been writing plays for 100, 110 years or something. Um, the history books tell us. Um, and every time we get close to, to, you know, being really innovative in our own voice as, a, as, a, as, as members of the global south, um, we get pushed back. And I'm worried that it's happening again. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about a little bit about the people in your play because there'll be people listening to this who may not have read it or may not be familiar with Jump for Jordan. There are six characters in the play. The protagonist is Sophie or Sophia. She's known by some of her family members. Can you tell us a little bit about who else is in the world of this play? Yep. So Sophie's... 2425 mm. and she has a sister. Her sister is Lauren. Lauren's 2122 um, and Lauren um, is about to get married. Now Lauren um, has done the dutiful daughter thing and stayed at home, didn't run away, um, but she is escaped. The, the mother is, you know, um, a, a very angry and bitter woman and I'll talk about Mara in a minute. Um, and so both daughters are trying to escape their mother, but they choose different ways to do it. So um, Lauren is trying to escape her mother by being a bit of a small target so you know I'm gonna I'm gonna marry I'm gonna leave home with honor you know I've got you know I've got a regular job and you know um she's she's totally different behind her mum's back but Mm. but you know to her mum's face she kind of like you know does the good good girl good daughter thing um and uh whereas Sophia tries to escape the conflict with her mother by running away and subsequently was Mm. disowned yeah (laughs) and shame to the family and had to carry that shame with her um, in the play, there's also Mara. So Mara's the mum. I have a really big um, soft spot for Mara. Mara is a really bitter character um, because she lost a lot. Um, because Mara uh, married in her 30s, um, had a career, was working at a well-off school, had a, had social standing, had an income, had a place in the society over there, safety, um, all of that, and then comes to Australia not as a refugee, as a migrant, um, um, and then ends up in um, a new suburb at the back of Campbelltown where they flatten the bush and just put a house on and services follow 10 years later if mm. you're lucky. I know all about I, That's how I grew up. Um, and she lost everything. She lost everything. She couldn't, you know, speak the language. You know, she couldn't return to teaching. She was left alone all day because the husband would have gone to work and things like that. So she never really got over her bitterness and resentment and has spent a lot of her life making people pay <laughs> <laughs> for her, her loss. Um, the father is Sahir, and Sahir's story is uh, a little bit more complicated. Born in Palestine, um, and his should I give the back? Yeah, I can. I can. Spoil yeah, absolutely. It. Spoil Go it's spoil it away. Okay, right. Yeah. Okay. So the backstory is um, Sahir's sister was an activist and stayed in Palestine in a refugee camp, and was running theatre programs for children, as happens right now in Palestine, um, and. Uh, is killed by another Palestinian because she's radicalizing the kids, supposedly. Um, and that breaks. And so, so he has to flee because he's seen to be her accomplice and walks to Lebanon and ends up in Australia. Mara is beside herself because she didn't know he was going to the camps mm. to help his sister. And he won't go back to Jordan because he's scared he's a target. So Mara has to decide, do I not marry this man mm. I love? and stay you know what do I do do I stay in Jordan do I go so she loves him too much she comes here um and um they never get it back together yeah (laughs) unfortunately you know he he wants to make for him Australia represents peace um and whereas for her it's just hell and grief so they can never reconcile because you know that it's just 
it, just too, 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 too messy. And this beautiful imagery of him cultivating mm-hmm. the garden and finding peace in the landscape here. Yes, exactly. Because what he, because you know, he starts poor. You start with nothing. Mm. You know, when you come as a refugee, um, and so he starts his garden by going for long walks with Sophia at night to avoid Mara. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> taking cuttings. <Yes. laughs> taking cuttings and growing them. So it's that it's that sort of thing that you know you have to start slow and small. Mm. In a new land, you do, you've got nothing, but you make the best of what you can with what you have access to. And so he starts to cultivate. And also to his growing natives, he, his kind of decision is to sort of, is, um, I'm going to live here now. Hmm. You know, I'm going to be of this land now. Hmm. And also in the play, he when he lands, he's, he's here for two years before Mara comes out. So he's, he's got English under his belt. Um, and he never speaks Arabic again because it cuts his tongue out, he says, and... He, yeah, he just doesn't want anything to do with that. He just wants peace and he wants a fresh start and he wants his family to be here and be safe and find peace. That's his dream for them. Um, there's Myra's sister, Azza, who's coming out for the wedding. Yes. <laughs> yes, tell us about her. She's a wonderful character. So Azza, I wanted, I really, really wanted to create a character that was um, female, Arabic, cosmopolitan, intelligent, well-read, politicised, across it. Um, because that's not the stereotype. You know, that's yeah. not the, the common, yeah. you know, the, the media sort of image. Of, you know, we see, you know, uh, on the new, you know, Middle Eastern women, oh, crying and crying, you know, justifiably, this has been a bomb, you know, but that's the image we have in a popular sense, you know, unless you go looking for them. Um, and, you know, I've, I've read work by Arabic women and I certainly know them and they're feisty, they're formidable, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted, I wanted a formidable, amazing, intelligent, wonderful presence on stage, you know. Um, and so Mara is the cosmopolitan sister that, you know, Mara could have been like that. She probably was like that, you know, back in Amman. Um, but Azza also has another aspect. She has, um, so she's called Auntie Azza when she's cosmopolitan and she's called Avenging Azza yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when she inhabits the play as an anxious projection of Sophie yes. or Sophia. Um, and, so, and so Avenging Azza is Sophia's imagined um, avenger. Like I'm, I have shamed the family so much that, you know, she's going to come and destroy me. <laughs> she's going to kill me. <laughs> she's going to do all these horrible things to me. And so she's an absurd, anxious projection and lots of fun. And she's, you know, every mad Arab stereotype you can think of, we threw it at her. Threw it into the, yeah, great. <laughs> Just threw it at her. Great. And um, a lot of anxiety, you know, amongst the cast, the, the, well, the director, you know, the team, um, thinking, oh, my God, I think we've gone too far. <laughs> I think, you know, people are going to think this is a racist play. I knew it wasn't. It's not. Mm. Um, and the audience never, ever, ever thought it was anything other than, you know, no. um, you know, and, it, it, you know, it, 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 a laugh at racism, if anything else. Absolutely. Now, there's another character, Sam. So Sam is um, uh, Sophia's partner, female partner. Mm. Um, and... Sam is not a closet case. So Sam is out to her dad, has a great relationship with her dad. She's a she's just finishing her second archaeology archaeology degree, um, which is where she met Sophia. Um, and she's just soul of the earth, you know, just um, she has methodology under her belt. She's got sort of her eye on the horizon. She's going somewhere. Um, you know, probably more patient than Sophie. So Sophie deserves because Sophie's kind of like spinning out of control um, a lot of the time. Um, 
She's so also got some of the best lines in the play. Sam. Know? Yeah. At <laughs> one point I think she says, your guilt needs its own bedroom. Yes. I love that line. Great. So six people you've talked about, and just to go to your earlier point, I, I was thinking about this. I mean, of the six, with the exception of Sam, all other five are Palestinian or Jordanian. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, the women are over 55, mm. over 60 even, mm. and if you include Sahir, there are two lesbians in this play and a, and a lesbian relationship. Mm. Uh, five of the characters are women mm. and three are Arabic speaking. Mm. Two, whilst Arabic is not spoken in the play, it is clear that it is being spoken. Right. If you read the play, you'll know what I mean, uh, partic- particularly between Mara and Azza. So mm. you flew against every thing you could possibly <laughs> fly against in what was on the Australian stage. <laughs> Uh, and and I guess to your to your earlier point about what you wanted to see more of. Mm. So, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the structure of the play because I think that the structure of this play offers such an in into what you're trying to do. You say very early on in the in the setting description that this play is set in Sydney's west and inner west. More broadly, it is set in Sophie, Sophie's fluctuating levels of consciousness, reality, memory, recollected family history, anxious projection, and insomnia-induced conversations with the dead. What a great provocation <laughs> for any team working on it. Um, why was the structure of Jump for Jordan so integral to what you were trying to achieve with the play? Yeah. Uh, when I first started, <clears throat> I had a couple of full starts. Um, what what I was really toying with up front <clears throat> was the idea that Sophia was an occupied territory. Yeah. Um, and with Palestine, the drive is for self-determination, as is the drive with Sophia. So I was kind of thinking, but how, you know, how can I use occupied territory as a structure? And I kind of decided you can't because there's no light. There's no. There's no. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> mm. There's just. No, there's no two-state solution really. Like no, there's no. just nowhere to go. Um, so I, I. I put that aside. But by doing that, you know, you know how when you you work on something creative, nothing's often a dead end. Like it's just the long way around. And so I then kind of, and also to you know the friend, the dear friend who you know bequeathed me. Not bequeathed. That's the wrong word. Gave me this story. Um, was an archaeological student and did have a passion for antiquities um, and wanted to go to Jordan where her parents had come from and walk on that soil and touch those objects um, and get to know that history. And so I thought, well, okay, and I just sort of went down that road and then I started to look at stratigraphy. So when, some people probably know, um, you know, deposits, you know, um, there's a volcano and there's a grey sediment, you know, left on the top of... Pompeii or somewhere and and then history happens and there's another layer and you know and so they're those they're stratigraphy okay and the layers of history layers of history layers of history with the most recent ones being at the top so I was interested in that and I thought well what are the different layers you know because you've got the play actually spans 30 years so so you know there there are scenes in there that span a Mm. 30 year time frame so I thought, well, there's kind, they're kind of the historical layers. But then I kind of did some research into disturbed archaeological sites. And so sites could be disturbed by, you know, like maybe feral animals or by earthquakes or by human occupation or there's different reasons for a disturbed 
a site to be disturbed. And then I thought, well, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I thought, yeah, let's, you know, because if she's, you know, if Sophia is, you know, um, like panicked by what's happening and um, not coping with kind of, you know, how to reconcile all of these things, I thought, well, you, you know, like her, you know, reality is like one strata and imagination's another strata and talking to her dead dad is another strata. Mm. And then I thought, well, if I disturbed all that and then had the story strands collapsing in on each other, then it's almost like the audience has to do what Sophie does and that's kind of like sift and sort and, 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 and link up and, you know, do a bit of detective work as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, um, I love the disturbed archaeological analogy because it creates a series of fragments and the play is very much a series it reads as a series of fragments but what i think the disturbed archaeological site also allows you to do so beautifully is play with time yeah Uh, can you talk about the approach you you had with time in the play yeah i mean i think for me it's kind of like for for sophia because the the play is like her psyche you Mm. know um, and so it's like, you know, all of us, you know, within our lives, you know, like, you know, there's the time that's happening real now, right now between us, but, you know, there's also, you know, maybe a memory of something I had on the, saw on the train or, uh, you, you know, so, so we're not ever kind of just one thing in one moment, mm. you know? Um, <clears throat> and so I wanted to kind of have a conversation across those sort of capacities that we have. I wanted the inner life and the outer life to coexist. <clears throat> um, and so what, the way I started to plait it, I, when I was creating it, I thought very much about this play as being like an exercise in plaiting. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so um, if most, most, not every scene, but a lot of the scenes, there's not, there's a, there's a few scenes where there's only one thing happening in one time frame. Um, but quite a few of the scenes have the past, well, they have the recent past. So some, something's playing out from the recent past. Something's playing out from the distant past and then something's playing out from the present. And so they're just, you know, so they're all going like this at the same time. Um, and I, for me, time works like that for me. I don't, you know, I just, you know, I, it's, Absolutely. time's not linear. Um, and time for me, it's it's connected to, you know, associations and memories and you can sort of, like, you know, summon something up from the past just by sort of, you know, you might say something and I'll go bang and remember something and... So I just wanted, you know, time to be very fluid. I wanted space to be very fluid. And part of the agenda of that is um, I wanted to escape realism because I think if you are putting um, different cultures on stage, if you stick to realism, you're in trouble because um, I think, um, because the accents have to be authentic, whatever that means, you know, and you can, and you, you know, you have to be, authentic to history, whatever that means, you know. Um, whereas <clears throat> this isn't a piece of documentary theatre. This is fiction. I am writing fiction. I'm writing something credible, you know. Cre- I'm, I'm, write- I'm making credible make-believe. That's yeah. what we do in theatre, you know. This isn't documentary. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to kind of – I wanted to blur barriers between time and space so that I could own a non-realist space so that I could not contain cultural difference within my play because I think realism and conservative dramatic forms contain difference. And I think that, you know, that's unhelpful. Mm. It, it also really allows you to focus on Sophie's wrestle. Mm. Uh, I mean, there is a, I don't want to use the word linear, but there is a, 
there is a whole present. There is a yep. there is a sequential present yep. that you can galvanize around. So yep. it's not some sort of abstract yes. path through. But it does allow you to play with flashback and Mara mm. and Sahir. We see them in in their younger mm. uh, forms, as you as you described earlier, um, and it allows us to play with the, the the not too distant past, the very distant past. So that's beautiful in terms of Sophie's psychology. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yeah. the The present tense through line is the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And the and the pressure cooker it creates. Yes. yes. On the yeah, absolutely. You you mentioned earlier that there is a a misconception that that women can't do structure, which I I've heard too. <laughs> um I would add to that big politics as well. Mm, yeah, we we don't do much yeah. of, of scale apparently. According to some people. Apparently. Uh I I'm curious to know how feminism or, or feminist aesthetic has influenced your work more broadly, but also Jump for Jordan. Yeah, Fem feminism's really important to me. Um, uh, when I did my MA in the 90s, <clears throat> I studied a unit called Women in Theatre. Mm. And I have four degrees because <laughs> that's my professional development. So, you know, I don't work for IBM where they send you off to do lots of training. <laughs> so I just do another degree yeah. in theatre, you know, highly employable I am. Um, not, but, but, highly, anyway. <laughs> but highly interesting. <laughs> That's very, thank you so much. Um, but in the 90s, I did this course run by Margaret Williams, Women in Theatre, and it, it rocked my world, changed everything, because until then I'd been trying to shove everything into a three-act structure <clears throat> and not understanding why my work wouldn't work. Um, and uh, so I was, you know, ex exposed to, you know, women, women writing, you know, um, in different forms, um, you know, partly to do with what I was talking about with realism, how realism is, is about containment. Um, and so a, a lot of the women's work I was looking at was um, creating um, Simone Ben Moussa, who directed, um, a French director who directed a Helen Sassou play called Portrait of Dora, um, wrote about um, a, a sphere of disturbance and how, you know, and I, so I, I'm kind of interested in the idea of, you know, feminist theatre making as a, mm. as a sphere of dis disturbance, which is, you know, it fits the disturbed archaeological mm. dig site kind of thing. And what is disturbing is um, categories, you know, you know, like a man is a man and a woman's a woman. Like, you know, and, you know, those, those alone are troublesome and problematic and wrong and all of that. And so, so feminism for me is, is very much about, you know, like, you know, allowing the complexity um, you know, it, 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 allowing people all their complexity. And also too, feminism is, you know, what it, it offers in terms of theatre practice is, you know, um, it's not about who you are, it's who you're becoming, you know. So it's not, you know, um, you know, like I, I get quite, you know, upset sometimes about plays. And I work with, I mentor a lot of young writers from cultural dif different backgrounds and they come to me and say, I don't really want to write about being an Aboriginal person. I want to write about something else, or I don't want to write about being a you know um, Indian person. I you know I you know and I, I it's quite I give them permission to not. You can write about anything. Yeah. You 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 know you are you are multitudes. You are many things. You are not just you know what you're born into. You are who you can become. You know you are who you are not yet, but might be one day. Like write about you know the world. Take it. Do it. Don't be contained. Um, and so for me, feminism is, 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 you know, it's about, 
you know, it's about departure and it's about escape and it's about, you know, disturbing and it's about, you know, um, opposing. But for me, it's also, you know, very life affirming because it's about embracing our difference, our differences and not being scared of those differences. And it's also about being willing to be changed by the exchange. You know, like I can be, you know, instead of like you being other, Mm. you over there, um, it's kind of like, oh, I could become other if I meet you. I might change too. How good that I can be other. I can yeah. be something else. You know, so so for, feminism for me opened up a whole new way of thinking about content and form. Yeah, I hear a lot of what you're saying and, and to me it also resonates with queer theatre. Yes, yes. And that, that notion of the ever-shifting. Yes. But also that notion that linearity is such a patriarchal structure mm. in a way in, mm. in, in traditional understandings of how the mm. dramaturgy of a play should work. Mm. So I'm really, you know, excited by how in Jump for Jordan you have clarity without having to be married to everything being linear. Yes, yes, thank you. And also too, another thing with that is um, f- f- the feminist work I was reading, <clears throat> um, it's also about claiming the interior world mm. because, you know, linear linear narratives are often externalised narratives, you know, um, whereas, you know, um, because for me, the sort of the, the feminism that I was exposed to, the feminist theatre practice, was, you know, it's kind of the urging us to be whole. And if we're whole, you know, we, we've got exterior lives and we've got many, many interior lives and we've got who we were, who we are, who we're becoming. Um, and so linearity doesn't support the complexity of one person, let alone communities, let alone countries. Mm, absolutely. It, it also allows you to do something else very interesting with the play, which is because it's not linear and it shifts time and space, is it allows you to almost set up all these stereotypes early in the play, mm. which we jump between until you start to dismantle them as the mm. play goes on. Was that something intentional? Oh, yes. The second scene is um, Aunt Avenging yeah. Azza um, arriving at customs and declaring her weapons. Her weapon, yeah. <laughs> and then being, you know, have a nice day. She's just flagged through customs with her weapons, you know, and, and that was really important. That was scene two. Like, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty early. <laughs> um, but and I think what's the line, something like, um, welcome to Australia, land of drought and sweeping drama queens or something <laughs> is the line. Um, and so I'm flagging really, really early that, you know, okay, this – there's a part of this play that's going to be pretty absurd mm. and pretty out there. You're on notice, audience. No. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's talk briefly about comedy because this is a comedy. Yeah. What steered the decision to lean into the comedy of the play? Yeah, okay. That's because I was writing a tragedy. Yeah, <laughs> that's, of course. That's what happened. Yeah. I thought I was writing a great Australian tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I seriously did. Um, until I gave it to um, a couple of dramaturgs. I was a student at uh, Wollongong University. So this was my doctorate mm. project. So two readers read a very early draft and within two weeks of each other, they both got back to me and said, this isn't a tragedy. This is really funny. Like, what, huh? Why have you got this down ending? You know, what? And I, I oh, oh, really? And they, and, but, and independently, they hadn't, they weren't speaking to each other, they, you know. And I thought, all right, okay, all right. And then I, you know, I was too close to it because there's, there's actually a lot of pain in this play. I mean, it's, you know, at the heart, it's, there's many deep griefs, you know, um, at the heart of this play. And so I think I was too close to the, the pain of it. And couldn't see it, but um, 
but other people just went, oh my, this is really funny. Um, and so what I did, I then, you know, the next couple of drafts, I actually researched comedy. And I just, you know, it's part of, part of my thesis is all about, you know, you know, um, what comedy does and, and how comedy works and how comedy – and comedy lent itself beautifully to the structure because comedy actually works um, because of dream logic. It works the way our dreams do because you can, you can have surprises, you can have shifts in logic, you can have, you know, you know the magic three where the, you know, the third thing that happens is a surprise but, you know, but logical in a dream logical way. And so researching comedy just then really fit with the, what I was trying to do with um, the structure because a lot of the structure was – because I was putting layers on top of layers, that was creating associative logic – and dreams work through associative logic. So um, it just started to marry up. And once I'd started to actually study comic tropes, and so Mara and um, Sophia, they're based on stock comic tropes where you have like the hypocrite and the the, the self-abnegating sort of they're, – they're a kind of comic couple mm. through history. Um, and so I studied that that comic couple and I, I, you know, I amplified their relationship according to that trope. And it, you know, and so it amplified the conflict and amplified the comedy and made it a lot more playable, big juicier characters as a result. Um, but also to, you know, carry, you know, comedy, comedy's life affirming, you know, and also to, you know, um, there's a there's something in comedy called a festive overthrow, which is the carnivale kind mm. of thing, you know. Um, and in the play, there's a festive overthrow where aren't as I cooks the meal and, you know, the, the, the glum bum Mara is sides, you know, sidelined so that, you know, they can feast and, and you know, um, have fun. And that's where Lauren stands up to the mother for the first time mm. and starts to then, you know, change the course of her life. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, so I took that idea of comic overthrow and put it in the play as a, as a moment. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, but, you know, I love comedy and I accidentally always write it. Yeah. And there's some wonderful, uh, moments in the play of scenes which are underpinned with with so much drama and, and tr the tragic mm. but where the setup is so funny like I, th I think of that great scene where Mara is trying to translate for the daughters to Azza who doesn't understand English and is and is adding her own sort mm. of polished up reality to mm. what she's receiving and it's painful because it's about her trying to construct this truth and mm. this reality but the way it unfolds is you know I, I People should go and read the play. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 so wonderful. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned earlier the character that's killed, Layla, is her name. What informed the choice not to put her as a character in the play? She almost was because I needed I, I needed a way for Aunt Azar and Sophia to have a conversation with no intermediary. Mm. So I needed Mara out of the way because Mara is the translator. Mara is the only bilingual person in the play, English and Arabic. Um, and so Layla almost made a ghostly appearance to kind of be a translator in that one scene and that was just never going to work. So that didn't happen. Um, so why did I decide not to have her on stage? Um, was that the question? Yeah. Um, well, you it, found a beautiful it, solution to the it, interaction it, between Sophia and Azar. We found that in rehearsal, actually. Mm. Yeah, I mean that when I um, arrived day one of rehearsal, um, there was a big hole in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew what had to happen, I, I, you know, but I, I didn't know how to do it because I hadn't solved the translation issue. So Wahibi from Macarthur Square, you know, as it goes to Macarthur Square mm. to, you know, by 
ingredients and get recipes and meets a cafe owner. And I was going to bring the cafe owner in. Yeah. Maybe. Um, and everyone in the cast is going, you can't introduce a new character this late in the play. What are you <laughs> the doing? Cafe owner. Yeah, I know, a- I know. It's like, yeah, but I don't know what to do. Um, and then we just hit upon that lovely solution where they just speak in concrete nouns. Yeah. You know, they, the, the, the survival English and survival Arabic that they each have, they, they somehow find a meeting place just using nouns, mm. a couple of verbs. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I was going to have Leela, but um, I just thought, well, I already have one dead character because I've got Sahir. Mm. Um, and it just was going to turn the play into something else. It was also then not going to be exclusively an Australian story because even though, you know, it, you know, it is a migrant story, it's about migration to here and it's about settling or not settling here. Um, and it, it just would have become a, a different play, mm. I think. Yeah. Speaking of very moving moments, uh, I, I mean, I recall the first production watching it quite vividly. And the, the most moving moment for me is a scene that happens very late in the play. It's a confrontation between Azza and Mara. Mm. In that first production, you also had two powerhouse actors. <gasps> yeah. Doris Yunane and Camilla Arkin did this scene. I don't want to give away too much about the content of the scene. I'd love people to read the play. But why was it important to you to show contested histories in the same generation of a family? I, I I think history is contested probably in every family, mm. <laughs> you know, because, you know, even if you just look at birth order with a family, mm. I mean, if, if, you know, you've got siblings born, you know, two, three, four, five years apart, <clears throat> each of those siblings have a different historical view of their family and a different perspective of their family. So, um, so I just think that's what family is, you know, and, but, but that scene you're referring to, um, which was amazing on stage yeah it was <laughs> like you know i know i wrote it but oh my god i was like what's going on oh, i know I've, there's tears rolling down my cheeks. i know it yeah. just it broke everybody like mm. every night I, I remember you know a whole bunch of my friends came who hadn't ever seen one of my plays and um you know the house lights come up and they're all drenched because <laughs> they because it's very late in the play as you say that scene um but it's 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 also it's about contested histories yes um and that scene is also about um contested attitudes, you know, because, you know, she, and as it says to Matt and Mara, you know, something about, you know, you're just rotting. Like, you know, you, you just, you know, you've stopped living. Um, and, you know, you've got beautiful daughters who are completely miserable. You're in this new land, you're safe. Okay, it's not what you planned. But, you know, everybody gets ambushed by history. Mm. You know, there's a line in the play about being ambushed by history. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, a lot of us don't end up living the lives we want, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean you stop living. Um, but Mara can't let go of um, the nostalgia for her past and, you know, the deep, deep love she had for her country, <clears throat> the country's history, and the deep, deep love she had for Sahir, the plans they had you know, to, to raise, you know, you know, their family on that land, in that space, you know, and time. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's kind of like Mara's blind because she's so embittered that, that, you know, she won't allow life and possibility in until maybe the last scene. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, which we won't give away. <laughs> and in line with that cosmopolitan, fully realised woman that Azza is, I think the tough love in that scene is also what adds to the heartbreak. She, oh, 
Yes, I know, and I can yeah, I can see you know Camilla mm. and Doris, you know, mm. just hammer and tongs, and you know, and it is because because um, Aunt Azza says you know you will lose them. Yeah, you know if you don't you know start living and soften, um, and see the love that's here, you will lose them. Mm. You know, and then um, she gets kicked out. Mara, yes, Mara kicks Azza out. <laughs> yeah. And you don't know what happens. You don't know what happens, yeah. <laughs> End of that fragment. Choose your own ending Choose to the your fragment. Own ending. Absolutely. <laughs> you talked earlier about uh, your intention to put a queer woman at the centre of this play and there is the relationship between Sophia and Sam. If we look at the canon of queer Australian theatre, a lot of it, most of it, tips towards the male gaze. Mm. Why was it important to you to put a lesbian relationship at the centre of this play? Mm. Um, it was really important because, um, you know, by the time I started writing it, I'd been writing for 20, more, 20 years, mm. I guess, and an avid theatre goer. You know, I'd been seeing, seeing everything as, as often as I could. Um, and... It was, you know, and, and also to, you know, having done my thesis, which I can bore you all with, um, the, the, the gay male presence on Australian stages has been there since the 50s on main stages. Yeah. Now, you know, um, you know, problematised and, you know, full of all the, you know, stereotypes and, they, you know, the, the gay male, you know, presence on stage had to form itself over time and find acceptance and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I was just aware through my my research that, you know, and through my theatre going that, that you know, the, the presence of, 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 you know, gay men or queer men, you know, we're front and centre. You know, it, it's, you know, like Tommy Murphy's beautiful, you know, um, mm. Strangers in Between and mm. all beautiful, beautiful work. You but can list it, I mean, Michael you, Gow and Peter Kennar. It's yep. such a long yep. list. Yep. Yeah, goes goes right back. And, you know, I think Clem Gorman and, mm. you know, there's a really, really long list. Um but um, there wasn't a, a visible canon of, you know, I mean, the, the canon of work by women on Australian stages. In, 19, in, in 2010, um, Julian Merrick, I think, uh, did some research, only 20% of plays on main stages were by women across the country in, in 2010. Wow. Can I tell you? Mm. So not that long ago. So, and those works were mainly, you know, risk averse works, you know, the research says. Um, and so there was just no space. And if there were lesbian characters on stage, um, the Sydney Theatre Company did a couple of productions, um, I think sort of, you know, Virginia Woolf related, Vita Sackwell West related sort of pieces. Um, um, and those plays were penned by men. And so, you know, if you did have a lesbian presence on stage, on a main stage, it was not even written by a woman. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, too, if there were lesbian characters, you know, maybe on TV or um, whatever, they tended to be predatory, you know, men-hating, um, seriously dysfunctional, um, crazy, and you know, and in the, you know, if there is a canon of you know lesbian-centered work, they usually kill themselves at the end. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, I just thought, again, you know, it's kind of like that's not every that's not the whole story. Like, I just got really sick and tired of, you know, not seeing it. And so, you know, I just thought, well, and I wrote this for the main stage. You know, this was written for the main stage. If I had written this with and for specifically an Arabic community, it would have been a bilingual work. 
mm. you know. But it's it's a bilingual work in English, <laughs> as yeah. you've kind of indicated. Um, I wanted to see, a, you know, a lesbian character who was, you know, um, you know, a worthy central character. So she had to have issues. She had to have problems. She had to have, you know, stuff to sort out. But I didn't want her to be sick. Mm. You know, in the way that, you know, female homosexuality or homosexuality or queerness has generally been, you know, through history, you know, um, put up. But it's just like we just lag the chain, you know, like, um, you know, like I, I, we just, I don't know, it's just it's just a hard won victory that, you know, it, you know, it, it just took until 2014, you know, to get, you know, a certain type of lesbian character as a protagonist on the main stage that wasn't deranged, yeah. <laughs> predatory, you know. It she's... was a big moment. If you add up everything mm. that was sort of in this play, it was. It, it's it's also, you know, big to have that yeah. representation. It's in, it's, I mean, it's really because I, I, I just wrote it because I'm bloody-minded. Like, I, you know, I just thought, blow you all. Um, mm. But it really is great to see the gains that have been made in, in a short space of time. You know, like it, it, you know, the, the stuff that you know wasn't getting done, um, you know, and 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 the representation that wasn't happening, um, it's starting to really, you know, the iceberg's melting mm. now, you know, and there's been a change of guards in, in, in you know, it, you know, in the gatekeepers of theatre companies and stuff. So, you know, so it's all starting to, you know, do more than trickle in now in terms of you know diversity of representation and things. So it's, you know, I'm heartened, but um, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I just kept. Being bloody minded, really. Mm. Yeah, the door's starting to open, but mm. you you took an axe to it in 2014. I did. <laughs> yeah. I did. Started breaking it down. You've talked about, and, and we know that any any play for a playwright is very personal, but I'd love to, to ask you, was this a hard process to write and what did you have to confront in yourself in order to, to yeah. write this play? It was incredibly hard to write, uh, which is why it ended up as a piece um, I wrote for my doctorate because mm. I was lucky at Wollongong University I had a scholarship. So, you know, <laughs> I couldn't get funding for this. I couldn't get support through script writing agencies for this. I couldn't get any support for this play. So it was just me off my own bat. Um, and then I made it part of my doctorate project at Wollongong University where I had a scholarship for three years and then I had the time to do the deep work on me you know, that had to be done in order to, to write this work. Now, you know, I mean, all plays, I guess, you know, are therapeutic to the maker. You know, you, you know you're engaging, you know, your own blood, sweat and tears in work that you make. Um, but it can't be therapy at the end of the day. I mean, but you still have to deeply process what it is that you take on. So I guess for me, I was um, processing, even maybe without too, being too aware of it, is... Um, my, my dad was born in Malta at a t during a bombardment in a cave um, and Malta was smashed to smithereens. Half the population was um, shipped out under the 10-pound POM scheme because there was nothing left. Um, they came here. <clears throat> um, I, I kind of get the – my grandmother died before I was born, but I kind of get the impression she was a dumped mother. You know, my grandfather probably just went to work and she had all these kids and they started speaking English and she never picked up the language because she never had work and she died really young and I think she died of a broken heart. Is it was She actually did have heart problems, but um, I kind of think there was nothing for her um, and she just, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it, that's a gap. That's mm. a gap, big gap for me that I feel 
with, um, you know, um, such empathy for for her and what she didn't have. Um, so I think so I think so I think part of it is just thinking back over my family's story about you know war displacement they weren't my dad's family weren't refugees but there really was nothing left on Malta so they might as well have been in a, in a sense but they were given free passage and um, I think my dad my, my grandfather I think had a couple of years work building Warragamba Dam you know how mm. they built brought people out to work on yeah. infrastructure projects and so he was working on, on Warragamba Dam um, and so I think for me, there's sort of the ghosts of displacement, the, the diaspora ghosts that kind of still walk around in my family tree. Um, I don't know a lot of my, my dad's um, story um, because, you know, my grandparents are dead and um, he doesn't really, you know, talk about it and I, I don't press him on anything. Um, you know, as he's getting older, he's saying more things and I'll just let that happen as it naturally will. Um, so I think part of it is just maybe some generational trauma, generational grief that, that sort of just gets passed down the line. Um, and also to, I think for me, um, in, you know, internalised racism against Maltese people was a thing because, you know, my, my Maltese family are very troubled and not easy people to be with, um, particularly when I, well, when I was growing up. And so I thought, well, that's what all Maltese people are like, not really understanding that that's just mine. That's just my family. And then, you know, meet other Maltese people and go, oh, they're great. What? Oh, my God. And so realising that I, um, you know, because of the gap, because of the gap in knowledge, um, you know, I you know, I turn racism on, on in, internally and that affects my own self-esteem because, you know, that's part of my makeup. And, mm. you know, so I think part of it was just reconciling those sorts of things. Um, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, Donna Rabella. Thank you so much for chatting with me tonight. Thank you, Dino. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Staging the Nation. Next time we speak with Alana Valentine about her play, Parramatta Girls. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to our channel. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Staging the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive producer, Joanne Key. Producer and technical director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. And this week's guest was Donna Rabella. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.